Let me also welcome you here tonight and wish you a very happy new year. And as John rightly says, we're turning to the book of First Kings this evening. First Kings. I wonder if I could give a few words of introduction to this book before we read from it. If First Kings, along with Second Kings, is answering a single question, it's answering this one. How did we get into this mess? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Surely you cannot live in the world we live in without asking that question from time to time. How did we get into this mess? Sometimes we ask it about our own lives, about our country, about our world. It's the sort of question that can only be answered by delving into history, isn't it? We retrace our steps to try and figure out how did we get here. Well, let me take you back nearly 3,000 years to the land of Babylon. There you will find a huge community of Jews. They've just recently been deported from their homeland. This is their new home, Babylon. They've just been conquered by this superpower. Their capital city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. The center of their worship, the temple, has been flattened. All of the things that God had promised to his people, they've been taken away from them. And now, here they are, outcasts exiled from the promised land and they would ask each other the question in Babylon how did we get into this mess well it was to answer that question that someone was moved by God to put together the books of first and second kings originally it was one book but it is a history book it records very succinctly the story of how the nation of Israel went from being blessed and prosperous under King David And then under his son Solomon, to finally being turfed out of their land and put into exile. You may be surprised to hear that the answer that the book gives to how did we get into this mess is not a political answer, it's not an economic answer, it's not a tale of bad luck, not a story of misfortune. It's a spiritual history of the nation. Because the real answer to that question is a spiritual answer. And this is what was written for those exiles in Babylon all those years ago. In our evening series, we're going to be looking at part of 1 Kings, zeroing in on a specific period of that history, one that focuses on the life and times of the prophet Elijah. But the scene into which he enters is very important for us to be clear on. So the first 10 or 11 chapters of this book Solomon is the focus. This is the golden era for the nation of Israel. But the end of his reign was the beginning of the end. The nation split into two, northern and southern kingdoms, and by and large, the kings that led those two nations were not God-fearing men. The focus of Elijah's ministry is in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're going to see that Elijah was an extraordinary man. But even more remarkable is that he had an extraordinary God. So if you have a Bible with me, turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to read from verse 29. And we're going to read all the way to verse 1 of chapter 17, but we're not going to pause for breath when we get there. You'll see what I mean. 1 Kings 16 verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. 
And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of, the, of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Amen. This is the word of God. I don't know if you have ever reached the point of despair. I'm not sure that I ever have in any serious way. But again, we just need to look around our world, don't we? And we can see lots of reasons why people might fall into despair. The threat of terrorism around the world seems to never have been higher. We are told it's an increasing threat. That there are people out there who are willing to kill innocent men, women and children in the name of their cause. And we seem to be so impotent to stop it. When we think of something like that, we can see that well, maybe wickedness seems to prevail. What about closer to home? Think about the church in Scotland today. Not only is it the case that the church faces significant opposition from a secular society, even the police have started referring to evangelical Christians as bigots. And in response to that, so many so-called churches have abandoned the gospel so that all we hear about now in relation to the church is its decline and when finally churches will be extinct. We live in a world where folks who believe the Bible to be the word of God and the authority for their life are increasingly pushed to the margins and there is barely a glimmer of hope that the tide will ever turn back. How are we supposed to avoid despair? Well, this passage is precious because it's the setting into which Elijah came. The setting into which God sent Elijah it was a time when wickedness seems to prevail. It would be very fitting to describe Israel at the end of chapter 16 of 1 Kings with Dickens' famous words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. For that was really the case. And it's hinted at in the passage. Here we're given this summary of the rule of King Ahab in Israel. And you could look at that reign and you could notice that he reigned for 22 years. Twenty-two years speaks of stability. And in fact, three times Ahab is mentioned here, he's always referred to as son of Omri. Omri, his father, the king before him, he had a difficult reign. The nation was divided, and it seems there was something of a civil war before Omri's reign was properly established. But for his son Ahab, he had none of those problems. His reign was a picture of stability. 
And one of the reasons for that is because Ahab was able to form stabilizing alliances. And one of those is mentioned in this passage that we've just read. With the king of the Sidonians in verse 31. And it was common to broker for peace with other nations by marrying the daughters of the king. And that's just what Ahab did in his marriage to Jezebel. And so it's widely believed that this was one of the most stable and perhaps one of the most prosperous times in Israel since the days of Solomon. It was the best of times. But one of the things that should strike you when we read that paragraph is that those sort of things are not the things that the writer of 1 Kings is remotely interested in. You notice how we're not told about the economic situation in Israel? No mention about the growth of GDP year on year. There's nothing even about the size of the military. Nothing about the politics of the time. I mean, we would like to know those things. Those would really help to flesh out the picture, wouldn't they? But really, all that we're told in terms of the basic facts of the reign of Ahab is how long it was and what the name of his wife was. The reason is because this history is written from a very different perspective. In terms of the economy and stability, it was the best of times. But in terms of what counts, in terms of God's perspective on human history, it was the worst of times. Why? Well, the first thing that screams out to us is false religion. It was a time of false religion. You see in verse 31 that there already is a a baseline of wickedness in Israel. The writer says, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom after the division of Israel. And he had a cunning plan to keep everyone on board. He feared that the Israelites would travel south into Jerusalem to worship at the temple and think, gosh... I've really missed all of this. I don't want to go back to the northern kingdom. I'd rather be here and have access to the temple. And so Jeroboam set up a parallel religion in north Israel. He built a temple in Samaria, and he had two golden calves set up so that they might worship the Lord. It was idolatry. It was a repetition of one of the, 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 the most memorable of sins of the people of Israel when they'd come out of Egypt. It was offensive to God. And it simply went down in history just the way that this historian records it here. The sins of Jeroboam. Well, look at Ahab. We're told here as if that wasn't bad enough. Look at what Ahab did. When he got married, he took to himself more than a wife. He took her religion too. And we'll see as we progress through these chapters that Jezebel, Ahab's queen, wasn't just someone who happened to be born into a particular religion. She was a fanatic. You find in in chapter 18 that she had 850 of her prophets dining at her table. You find her putting God's prophets to death. She's a fierce opponent of the God of Israel. And Elijah, before we're finished with him, is going to feel her wrath as well. But that doesn't seem to stop Ahab. The so-called king of Israel, he marries her. And he buys into this religion of hers. Here, the leader of God's people 
goes after another god. Baal. And the ways that uh, that's described, he, he served, he worshipped, he built a house, he built an altar, he made an Asherah. This became the state religion. All their, all their uh, tax shekels were going to build the structure of a new religion. And that, that stands out in just the way that this is written, the repeated use of Baal. He went and served Baal and worshipped him, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. Baal was everywhere. Baal was a fertility god, worshipped by the, the pagan nations round about Israel. The mention of Asherah here as well, that was the name of his wife. A fertility god who supposedly had powers over the climate, who had powers over the weather. And so if you wanted to be a fruitful farmer, then you really wanted to have Baal on side. But you see, because Baal was a fertility god, the religious rituals that surrounded Baal, they were largely centered on sex. The rainy season was from autumn to spring, and when that came to an end, it was thought that because it stopped raining, Baal had gone to sleep or perhaps had died. And it became the responsibility of the worshipper to revive this God, to waken him up. Well, it was everyone's religious duty to do this by engaging in relations with Baal's prostitutes. You see, when it came to sex in this religion, abstinence or temperance was not regarded as a virtue. In fact, you might be jeopardizing the harvest if you have some kind of strict sexual ethic. And so you can see a religion here that promises great prosperity. You get Baal on board and you will have the most fruitful harvests you could ever wish for. You have a, a religion here that appeals to human sensuality. Well, it's little wonder that it's proved such a hit, not just with Ahab, but among the people of Israel as well. It's not surprising that there was something of a, of a lure when the Israelites looked at some of their neighbors who found in Baal the all-round perfect center of religion, one who let you feed your own fleshly appetites and promised you rewards at the end. What could be better? And it's something Israel struggled with from the very moment they went into this land. But here it's no longer a struggle. Their religion has been adopted wholesale by the king. And this is why the writer of this history describes Ahab as the most wicked of all the kings. And he also wants us to never forget that God is never unmoved by wickedness. See that in verse 33? Ahab, not only was he the most wicked, but in verse 33, because he was, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is what counts. Who he was in relation to God. He could have had the finest economic plan. He could have had a, a great system of compassion for the poor. But the determination of success or failure of this king was his relation to God. 
And as we'll see, the success or failure of the nation all hinged on its relationship to God. To turn from him and to embrace another God, to embrace false religion, that's what provokes God to anger. But there's another thing, and they're closely linked, but um, the nation is characterized by false religion, and it's also characterized by the rejection of the word of God. That's something that's flagged up for us here in verse 34. You're given something of the, of the tenor of things in Israel in these days. Verse 34, Hiel of Bethel rebuilds Jericho. Now that might not immediately stand out to you why that's important. But maybe you'll recall that Jericho was one of the first cities that the Israelites conquered when they entered into the promised land. You'd find that in Joshua 6. And the city was utterly flattened. And then when that's all done, we read this. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. God had declared a curse. God had destroyed this city, and it was never to be rebuilt. It was a curse that carried severe consequences for whoever went against God's command here. But yet, it was in the days of Ahab. When else? In the days when wickedness seemed to prevail, Hiel decided he would rebuild the city. And it's just the extent of the defiance here. You see, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. I mean, just think of how hard-hearted this man had to be to proceed with the thing that had passed down through the generations saying, do not rebuild Jericho. Jericho will never be rebuilt. There's a curse on anyone who does it. And this man proceeds to set about the work. And when the promise is fulfilled that the one who lays the foundations of Jericho, his firstborn will die, surely you would think he would stop in his tracks. But no, he proceeds to finish the job and he hangs the gates of Jericho and what does it cost him? His youngest son as well. Some people think that um, what's being described here is Hiel offering his sons as a sacrifice, but there's, there's certainly no need to read it that way. God pronounced that this would happen. This is God's active judgment for the rejection of his word, that this man would keep on going in the face of God's judgment nothing was going to stop him from doing what he wanted to do certainly not god god was fulfilling his words but all that it revealed was the hardness of the man's heart this is the world that elijah entered into And we probably lose something of the shock of this passage because there's this big number 17 put in the way. Because you see, there's no introduction for Elijah. You know, there's none of this, uh, the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, Elijah, Elijah said, here am I, Lord. We don't get any of that. Elijah just appears like that. 
We're supposed to see that it's this time of prevailing wickedness and then out of nowhere, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my words. His name is his message. His name means the Lord is my God. We're not sure where Tishbe is today. But look at to whom Elijah delivers the message. And again, there's just so much we would love to know, isn't there? How did Elijah get to the king to deliver this message? We don't know, but what boldness, what confidence Elijah has in the living God. So much so that Elijah is sent to deliberately stamp all over Baal's turf. Because it's Elijah who says that on the basis of, of, of God, of the God of Israel being alive, I can say to you there will be no rain and no dew. Your false god Baal is going to go to sleep and you will be unable to waken him up. No more rain until I say so. You see, Elijah wants the king and all Israel with him to see that Baal is just a human invention. He doesn't exist. And right throughout this history, at no point does the writer of this history want us to think that, well, there you have the God of Israel who's most powerful and Baal is some kind of lesser God. He doesn't exist. He is a non-entity. The rain that they have had has been because of the gracious blessing of God. What could be more rebellious than to attribute it to one of the pagan deities? But Elijah is doing more than just making a statement against Baal here. He's declaring again for the people the terms of God's covenant. That promise that God had made that if they would be faithful to him, then they would know his blessing. They would be established as a nation. They would have everything they could ever need. But if they turn their hearts away from God, they will know his curse. And what will that mean? There will be famine, no fruitfulness. Or as Moses put it to the people in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Well, Elijah shows up and very deliberately he's enforcing the terms of the covenant. You could not have broken covenant with God in a, in a more clear and more offensive way. So there will be no more rain. No more harvest. No more fruitfulness. But you know, God never acts out of vindictiveness. The fact that the curse falls on Israel is supposed to be a message to them. Remember how God said he would do this if you were unfaithful? This was to turn them back, not to write them off, not as some never-ending judgment, but it was to turn them back to God. So what we're seeing here is that in the midst of the darkness of the scene, God does not forget or abandon his mission. He does not forget or abandon his promises. No, he, 
he acts. Even when it seems as though wickedness is prevailing in the land, he acts. He sends a messenger into the midst of that darkness to declare that he's alive and well. You see, the fact that there seems to be an overwhelming majority against God is not a sign that God has given up, not a sign that God is losing the battle. No, this is what God does. I was struck by this in the run-up to Christmas when we were looking at the prologue to John's Gospel. Uh, we were looking at the early chapters of John, early verses of John chapter 1. And uh, there's a bit in there that just seems out of place. And most Christmases when we read John 1, we miss out this little bit because it just seems like maybe John made a mistake in slotting it in there. Um, let, me, let me just read the start of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That bit about John, it just seems out of place. You've got this wonderful imagery about the word, the life, the light, the darkness. And then we slip into this much more literal kind of speaking. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. But do you see there's a sense here of, of this is how God acts. In the midst of the darkness, what does God do? He sends a messenger. And I think that one of the reasons, and I might be getting off track here, why John puts that in there is that because this is the pattern of how God works. This is how God declares to others about the Messiah. He sends a messenger. Where there is darkness, he sends someone with the message of salvation. And of course, there's something unique about John. But there's something typical about John as well, because it's how God operates. There's something unique about Elijah. But again, there's something typical about Elijah. This is the pattern of God at work. He sends a messenger. And don't we see this pattern supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true light, who shines in the darkness, the one who comes to take our nature to rescue us from sin, I mean, was there ever a more dark, seemingly more hopeless scene where evil was prevailing than the cross? And yet it's there and from that dark scene that God is able to bring salvation. God does not leave the world without a witness. He does not forget his people, even when wickedness seems to be prevailing all around and so when we come back again to think about our lives and we see the heartaches, we stand here on the first Sunday of a new year and we look at the uncertainties, the things we anticipate may be disappointments or the disappointments we still struggle to get over from last year. And we wonder, is it worth keeping on going? 
Well, even when wickedness seems to prevail, we can be sure that there's nothing that can derail God's plans. There's nothing that can nullify the promises of God to us in Christ. He has promised to use every one of those experiences in our life for our good and for his glory. Now, we might struggle to see how that can be, especially in the midst of the darkness, but God's word is sure. This is how God works. In the midst of the darkness, he doesn't forget. He speaks. He acts. And he's preparing you for glory. When we look at the church again, in in all of its seeming weakness in our society, all of the ways that it's marginalized, Bible-believing Christians are decried as dangerous bigots. We must remember that God's promises to the church are neither derailed nor are they forgotten. Because Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, even if it seems that all around wickedness is prevailing. The church will never die out, but will continue to grow until the day of Jesus Christ. But I suppose there's something else to mention here, isn't there, about Elijah? And that is something about the nature of the man. We're not given very much detail about him at all. We learn some things about him later on, perhaps some character weaknesses, some strengths. But perhaps one of the things that we'll remember about him is when he's referred to in the New Testament by James in his letter. He tells us in chapter 5 of that letter that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. James gives us that example uh, as an illustration of the power of prayer. And again, it is not the power of the man, Elijah. It is what God can do with an ordinary human being. And this is what encourages me, that this was God's pattern. When wickedness seems to prevail, he sent an ordinary guy. Because this ordinary man had an extraordinary God. And this is still God's pattern. You try telling me that in this world it doesn't seem like wickedness is prevailing. But you know what God is still doing? Sending out ordinary men and women, sometimes sending them out on their own to use them to bring about his purposes, to use them to speak into that darkness. That pattern of one person telling another the message of salvation is how God is still working in the midst of darkness. Praise God, even in idolatrous Israel, God was still at work, still speaking, still calling sinners to repentance, still using ordinary folks who were faithful to him as his mouthpiece so that they might change a nation, so that they might change the course of history so that people might be saved. You know, Elijah would have to have his eyes opened to a few things. Elijah was so conscious of the wickedness around him that he became convinced that he was the only guy 
the only one. And then one day God revealed to him, you know what, Elijah, you think you're the only one. I've got 7,000 who've never worshipped Baal. God is at work even in the midst of darkness. Darkness and wickedness that seems to surround your life, surrounds the church and fills this world. And we need to take great encouragement from that as we look ahead to a year of uncertainty for sure. A year where we have no doubt that wickedness will continue to abound. But it's into that darkness God speaks. And that God wants to speak through you and me. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for... I just want to thank you for who you are. Father, there's not one of us here that wasn't born in sin and iniquity. Not one of us here who who is undeserving of your judgments. Not one of us here who didn't prefer darkness to light. And yet it was into that sorry state that you reached in, drew us up out of the miry clay, set our feet on a rock, that you opened our eyes to see Jesus Christ as the Savior who died for sinners, who granted us faith to trust in this Savior and claim him as our own. And we thank you, Father, that though there are so many things that might cause us to despair in our world and even in our lives, that it's into those circumstances that you act, you speak, you persevere, and you keep your promises. May that be an encouragement to everyone who knows you. May it be a challenge to everyone who's yet to trust in Jesus. Father, we pray everyone would come and find the certainty of knowing Christ, certainty not just for 2019, but for all eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.